This is Dan Santat, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. I needed a space, you know, away from the house where the kids are getting dropped <laughs> all the time, where you have, you know, a, you know, and you're uninterrupted by internet and all that kind of thing as well. Um, and I'm so intrigued by how many writers and artists and creators have that, yeah. um, a space, maybe a shed or a studio at the bottom of their garden. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. So a few weeks ago, we interviewed Sonia Mansano. She was talking about how kids these days, when they're learning how to read, don't necessarily get to have like imaginative uh, stories anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of agree with her. Like we were, I, I know we didn't expand on that conversation, but I, the books that Isaac gets home for the readers are just like, I like apples. They are red. Yeah. Are, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, but. So I like to see authors that are putting things out there that are, you know, imaginative and in the fan- yeah. fantasy was my one of my favorite realms when I was a kid. I remember reading The Hobbit for the first time and it was just like stories like this exist. <laughs> I know. It blows your mind when you read it for the first time. Right. Now, to be fair, because kind of what I do during the day is closer to what we just you just complained about with the uh, I like apples and okay. red. Okay. Um, there is a there is There's a, probably a reason I, for it. I, I can't even say a vast difference. There is a gulf. Like there is like a galaxy between those types of readers and actual books. Right. <laughs> you know, those books that, you know, like here is Pat. Pat yes. sat. Yeah. Pat sat on a mat. Those are not intended to be interesting and, right. and imaginative. Those are um, depends on which publisher pushes them out. And here I'm totally geeking out about, he's my publisher geek. Um, <laughs> they're either called decodable readers or they're leveled okay. readers or what, whatever they are. Those are books intended for getting kids to learn how to read, okay. how to decode words and how to use the phenom- the phonomics. I just made up a word. How to use the phonics and the, their phonemic awareness of what the letters mean, the, 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 the sound and letter correspondences. Mm-hmm. So when they see a word like red, they can sound it out, R-E-D, right. and they can put those sounds together to make a word. Those books are not supposed to be Lord of the Rings. Nice. <laughs> well, you know what, Jamie? We need to have a full episode of you explaining and publishing things to me. Because I, I don't know these things. <laughs> so I agree with you that there are pl- – because Zoe doesn't bring them home as much anymore. She's in right. second grade. Um, but even so, she does bring home some reading – short reading books that are kind of boring. But mm-hmm. Sam in kindergarten brings home those books all the time. Right, those books, course, yeah. Those are books for kids to learn how to read and to feel good about themselves because they can read it. Oh, okay. I and should, I once, they, <laughs> once they read, here is a ball, it is red, I like red, right. then they can move on. To move red. on up. 
<laughs> Moving on up. Okay, so so how does this relate to what we're talking about? It probably doesn't. I don't know. I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, you can click the dial off or just fast forward to the interview. I don't know. <laughs> because to, it's we're not talking Tolkien, obviously, but right. it's all in in kids literature um, today. She might be the second best thing. Right. If that's yeah. not overselling her, yeah. really? No. I think so. Yeah, no, for sure. In my house, she is, that's for sure. So yeah, today we're talking to Cressida Cowell, who, if you aren't familiar, um, you're about to be, because she is the author of all the How to Train Your Dragons books. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right, if you didn't know, they're actually books! They're not just movies DreamWorks made, they're based on books. Um, she has written 12 books in the series, wow. and the series is now technically officially over um she's moving on to something else at the moment uh but the books are really they're, they're very different than the movies so if you enjoy the movies and you enjoy the stories that they tell you'll enjoy the books but they're different um zoe is in love with them she mm-hmm. has read i think she hasn't read 11 and 12 but she's read all the other ones she has them on audio um, and last week we were kind of swooning over David Tennant a little bit because he's the new right. voice on DuckTales. Uh, he narrates the books for the audio. Oh, nice. And uh, it's amazing. Uh, it, so and if you only know David Tennant through Doctor Who, um, you'll be a little bit surprised because that's not actually his real voice on Doctor Who. Like mm-hmm. he has a different accent. Yeah. Um, and so he has um, he puts on. I, I think it's actually his real his real voice when he does the narrating for How to Train Your Dragon. So okay. um, it's very good. So he's, we're in love with them. Um, Zoe's obsessed with them right now. And uh, we just had a great conversation. I had a great conversation right. with, with Cressida about the books. I love This is what I love about the show because, you know, in pop culture, most people know How to Train a Dragon in the movies. And now we get to present to them. Here are the books that the movies are. Ba- I'm, I'm geeking out about our own podcast right now. We get to we get to tell people, hey guys, there's more to check out than just the movies. Go check out these books. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> assuming many people already know that. Yeah, I mean, I'm there's sure. Twelve books in the series. It's oh, been yeah. around for a it's long very popular, time. But it's very know, popular. There's some people though that you need to. You know, yeah. you always have, that's what, yeah, <laughs> I think it's cool. Yeah, and there, but there are people who don't know. There are people whose kids, you know, saw the movie mm-hmm. or maybe watched the show on Netflix and right. don't really realize that they're based on books. Um, they are, and the books are really, really good. So I would definitely recommend checking them out if you haven't already. Perfect. So we're going to go play that for you right now. Hope you enjoy. President, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Absolute pleasure. Um, I, I wanted to start with something that I thought was was very interesting. Doing a little bit of research before we, we got <laughs> on the phone, all of your bios mention the same thing. They all mention this small island on which you spent a lot of time when you were younger. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah. When I was younger, I, I grew up in London, in the center of London, in a house without a garden. But my dad was a mad keen bird watcher. So every year from when I was a baby, he would be taken to this uninhabited island off the west coast of Scotland, an island so small that when you stood on the top of it, you could see sea all around you. And there was nothing on the island, no houses, it was completely uninhabited, no roads, no grocery stores. And to start off with, we'd be dropped off by a local boatman and picked up again two weeks later. (laughs) 
no mobile phones back in the 1970s, so no way of contacting the outside world if something went wrong. And from, from the age of nine, my dad had a house built on the island, and he got a boat, and then we spent the whole summer on this little island, um, catching fish to eat and no electricity, no television, um, so all candlelight. And my dad told us a lot of stories uh, in the evenings because, you know, we had to tell yeah. he us a lot of stories, local stories about the Vikings who used to live here because the Vikings, that west coast of Scotland was where the Viking, these Viking pirates um, first came. Um, a thousand over over a thousand years ago, so there were real. Although nobody had lived on the island for a hundred or so years, there were these little ruined houses where real Vikings mm. would have lived. Yeah, wow. so that was their direct. <laughs> it's such an incredible childhood. That, so um, that must have been just so exciting. As I mean, as a young kid, just that I mean, there's no better place to explore. No, absolutely. I'm an incredible place to to, to explore, and. As I say, my dad used to tell us these stories about the Vikings, and the Vikings believed that dragons really existed. Um, so there were lots of stories about, um, you know, a, a dragon that had turned into a hillside, mm-hmm. and as it happened behind the little house, there was a there was a hillside that looked exactly like the back of a oh dragon. So I used to imagine, you know, lying awake at night, I used to imagine, what if the sound of the storm was <laughs> a dragon waking up? You know, so uh, that that was the real, you know, it was it was an it, it, the direct inspiration yeah. for the stories. Yeah. So yeah. you said you ended up going to that island because your father was a birder. Yeah. Um, was and in fact, he's, he was chairman of something called a, a, a charity that protects birds mm-hmm. in the end. Yeah. So was that, I have to imagine that island was very good for birding then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, and, and this is the thing because my, of my dad being a birder. I mean, no bird was just a bird. Yeah. It was a kind of lesser spotted, you know, exactly. something very rare for these parts. And that's partly why I made the dragons you know, so specific, you know, all these different species of dragons, um, because for my dad, he's an environmentalist, you know, um, nothing was just, just a bird. (laughs) Exactly. Everything had a story. Everything had a very specific name. Yeah. Yeah. So were you aware as a child that this was something different? Like this was not something that every family did? I think children are never quite aware of that, are they? <laughs> they just assume. They don't just, they just this assume. This is normal, right? This is normal. And that every parent is as crazy as my parents <laughs> You know, because, I mean, it was, I mean, I can't, I mean, imagine kind of going with, you know, little children, as they say. And, and, no, and even now, my dad goes to that same island. I mean, it's because it's where his heart is, you know, yeah. that's his heart place, you know. And he, he's, he's nearly 80, and, and he still can't get a mobile phone connection. Wow. You know, so you have to go out to sea to, to connect, yeah, um, to get a mobile phone connection. And it's often stormy. This is not, you know... Um, uh, this is not a gentle yeah. sea, you know, this is stormy sea. So, uh, yeah, and I just thought that every, yeah, I think I do think, you just, it's a child, you always think that, don't you? Yeah. You think what your, your childhood is, is normal. It is. It's yeah. amazing what kids just accept as being, just if it's part of their life, then it's it's got to be part of everybody's life, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Although I do think, what's interesting is that I do think that that the experience wasn't so different the experience of growing up in the 1970s, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, um, where 
you know, the notion of childcare was to open up the front door and let the kids go out and right. say, back and back, come back and when you're hungry, right. which is what we grew up with. I mean, in my case, we were exploring, you know, these wild and uninhabited island, often in boats on our own, you know, so it was quite extreme. But I think lots of, lots of parents who grew up at that time can identify with that. Yeah. Absolutely. Don't you reckon? I, I absolutely. I mean, I I grew up in the '80s, and it's it's still a it was a vastly different time. You know, we would just get yeah. on we would get on our bikes and we would ride yeah. around the neighborhood and yeah. You know, if, if I, you ask my mom today, she'd be like, "No, I knew where you were every moment of the day." She, yeah, she, that's she, not yeah, true. She didn't. That's so not true. <laughs> I know, I know. So it, it it was it was different times, and I don't know what's happened. You know, yeah. because I don't think that the world has necessarily got more dangerous actually no we've just become I, more aware of the things that happen in it yeah i, I know and, and and there is there is a problem with that which is, it, i feel is that that children feel less freedom mm -hmm. you know and and we were built to explore we are kind of viking peoples at heart i think don't you think you were being absolutely um we were built to explore and and I just think that, that that is a problem with childhood nowadays, that it's got less wild. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. So yeah. is, would you say that the, that island is, I mean, is that the basis for Burke? Yeah, yeah. it's absolutely the, it's, that is the heart of the books. That's yeah. the inspiration for the books. Yeah. Do you, you, you mentioned that your father still goes there. Do you still go there? Yeah. I have to say, um, we've taken the kids there. I mean, it's, it's heaven for kids. Oh, sure. Um, uh, obviously, um, I, have to, I have to say, slightly more difficult with teenagers. <laughs> I've, teenagers I've who got... expect to have their devices working everywhere. Where's the what's the Wi-Fi password? Exactly, what's the Wi-Fi password? And with young adults, you know, there's no pub that you can slope off to and complain about your parents. Exactly, you know? there's no connection to. You know, so I think for teenagers and young adults, it can be a little bit more tricky, but they'll get through that, you know? Yeah. I think it's still a magical place. So, I mean, we still go, but we go with less regularity than yeah. we did when they, when they were little kids. Because <laughs> for little kids, it is just heaven. But yeah, teenagers, they, they feel they need to be connected, oh, don't sure. they? Two, yeah. two, three, four weeks in the middle of summer, completely disconnected from everything else? No, that's not going to happen. You're going to get rebellion. <laughs> get a teenage revolt. So that's where you began writing, is when you yeah. were a young, young child yeah. on the island. Yeah. yeah. And once you decided that you wanted to become a writer, and this is what you were going to pursue as a career, and you were going to go to school for it, did you get a lot of support from your friends and family? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think that there's always a pro you know, <laughs> and I think you want to be a writer to the family. I mean, of course they're supportive, yeah. but it's a bit like saying, okay, I want to go and be a rock star. <laughs> it doesn't seem like so realistic and ambition, yeah. which in a way is true. It is something, because kids often say, oh, you know, obviously, you know, they always hear the stories about the famous writers who make it and... But, you know, it is something you have to go into for the love of it. Yeah. Because there's no guarantee that, you're, you know, however hard you work, there are, there are writers out there who are working, you know, their socks off, mm -hmm. but just don't have that lucky break or, you know, so you do, do have to go into it for the love of it. 
Yeah. It is something that you need to go into for the love of it. Exactly. I mean, you, um, you can't begin writing and say, I'm going to become a successful writer because that's yeah. not something you could control. You could become a writer. Not, yeah. You can become a writer and you can work your hardest at it and you can, you know, produce the best book that you can and, you know, try and, you know, get into it, you know, and publish it, you know, do all the, the right things, but still you need the lucky break or the, you know, don't you? Yeah. Um, so, so it, so it is something that you have to, I, I always say to kids, you need to go into it for the love of it. Because yeah. there, <laughs> there are more secure careers in the world. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but, but it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful job. It's yeah. a fantastic job. Um, you know, it's, it's so, fant- you know, for me, you know, because I obviously loved reading books as a kid and I want to get children of nowadays reading with as much pleasure and excitement as I did when I was a kid. So to be a writer, to be part of that, hopefully trying to get a new generation reading, that is so exciting for me. That's part of why I write. Yeah. Did, I mean, becoming a writer is one thing. Yeah. Becoming a published writer is another. And then becoming oh, a yeah. successful writer is, is something else entirely. Yeah. But how... <laughs> yeah. how, how you hear a lot of stories from different writers and even writers who are wildly successful today that they had a very difficult time getting that first manuscript accepted. I mean, when, how difficult was it for you to sell your first book? Did, it, did you have to go through that road of rejections or did you hit a lucky break? Um, I was lucky with the first, um, with my first book. I entered a, a prize when I was a student. Mm-hmm. I, I read English at university um, and then I went back, went to art school because I write and illustrate the books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I come from a, so when I was at art school, I, I um, entered a competition. I always think it's a great idea to enter competitions, um, which was a children's book competition run by a publisher. And um, I won a prize in that competition. Um, you know, it was, it was write your own picture book and, you know, and, and that's where I met the first editor. So, so I was lucky in, I got, you know, my first you know, break my first book published straight when I was out of art school, even though I'd spent a long time in education and everything. So I was quite old by that stage. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, I say to get, it, it wasn't instant success. You know, I had maybe five or six um, picture books published. I was a good five years into the, into the business, you know, with, with, you know, with moderate success, but, you know, not huge, you know, runaway. It's not necessarily instant success. And then, it wasn't until, you know, good five, six years into the thing, um, the career, um, I, I, I wrote my first work of fiction. I was writing picture books and that was How to Train Your Dragon. Mm-hmm. And that, even that was not the instant success <laughs> that, that kids might sometimes expect. Right. It is something you really have to work at. And, um, you know, we very quickly got, you know, lots of co-editions. So you were published in, you know, 28, 30 different languages. So that happened very quickly. Um, uh, but it was still, you know, it, it took time to build it up and a lot of hard work. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's not always that immediately gets published and sure. yay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but, but it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's been, it's, it's lovely, you know, when yeah. it ha- happens. What, we, exactly. Once that happens, it's, it's, you don't want to say it's it's easy street after that because it's no. not, but it's it's it makes other things a little bit easier than they once were. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I was intrigued to see that um, you still have, I, I guess you could call it your own 
type of uninhabited island. I mean, you have your little, sh- you have your shed, your garden shed in the, in the, behind your house. And it, it, how important is it to you to have that seclusion while you're writing? I mean, are you easily distracted and you need to have that seclusion or is it something else about that? Um, uh, I, I find it, I mean, it was just something that I naturally went to because I had little kids when I was starting uh-huh. writing. And, you know, and it wasn't, you know, then it wasn't, you know, I was having to work from home. I was working part time, um, sort of three days a week when I started off, you know, um, and and I needed a space, you know, away from the house where the kids are getting interrupted <laughs> all the time, where you have, you know, a you know, and you're uninterrupted by internet and all that kind of thing as well. Um, and I'm so intrigued by how many writers and artists and creators have that, yeah. um, a space, maybe a shed or a studio at the bottom of their garden. So many writers and artists, artists do that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's, 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 um, it's because as a writer, you have to get so absorbed in your world and you don't want to get interrupted in that small space. You can you can surround by pictures of your fantasy world and get really immersed in it. Yeah. Um, but I was so interested, you know. For instance, John Powell, who who does the music for the for the films. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently visited him in his house in because um, I was in Los Angeles to see about the making of How to Train Your Dragon Three, and he has a studio at the bottom of his garden. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, amazing. Obviously, it's completely different. It's very high yeah, tech. Very <laughs> it's set up for writing music, but but again, it's it's this very similar thing. As artists, you have this space within your you know your home that is separate, but but it, and, and is an artistic space. Yeah. Um, and um, and I and I sort of looked into if you start looking into writers who have sheds. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so many, you know, old writers of the past, like this guy called George O'Brien Shaw had had a shed that revolved so that he could catch the sun. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Things like that. But, but lots and lots of writers like Roald Dahl, you know, have, have sheds. And yeah. so many writers and illustrators I know have that. Yeah. I mean, it's especially now, especially if you're, if you're trying to write at a, I don't know if you write, do you write on computer or by hand? The first two books I wrote by hand yeah. because I was of a generation that I did all my essays like at um, uh, in, in universe, university uh-huh. that were all by hand. I mean, it seems extraordinary to, but I was probably the last generation <laughs> to do that. Um, uh, but now I do it on computer, obviously, because it's so much easier yeah. um, and you can move chunk. I mean, I revise a great yeah, deal, it makes so it you can editing so much easier. Editing is so much easier. Yeah. However, I have to say, um, I mean, I'm still an, illust- I'm an illustrator as well, but if I get to a difficult bit or a kind of poetic bit or a moving bit, I tend to go back to writing longhand really? for that. Yeah. And I think it's something to do with the feel of the pencil on the paper and the, I don't know, the, the immediacy of it for me, or maybe it's just because that's the way I grew up writing. Yeah. Um, but I find I do that. Yeah, I, I've heard a lot of people say that, even people who never yeah. didn't, that wasn't part of their experience when they were younger, you know, like writing long essays by hand, but still like the act of, of just stepping away from a computer and the immediacy of it, like you said, and and just writing things out longhand, it, it gives yeah. your brain time to 
to, to linger on thoughts and ideas and, and yeah. stretch it out a little bit more than you wouldn't have otherwise. Yes, that's so interesting. Oh, lots of writers you've interviewed say that. They do, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, it is interesting. And it's interesting to see the different processes, you know, I mean, because if I if I were to sit down and write on a computer, which is, like you said, it's so much easier and for editing, it's so much faster to move pieces around. Yeah. I still, the internet is one click away from me, you know, and so it's, oh, that see. distraction yeah. is, is too enticing. So I think... I, I see the appeal of that the the garden shed or the house the the, the log cabin in the woods or the yeah. the house the, at the, at this at the shore and it's you know there's no internet connection it's just a computer that's you know with with word or whatever you use and yeah yeah I, I absolutely see the appeal of that yeah, yeah. and and I and I, my shed is all I've, I've kind of deliberately grown lots of vegetation all over it and lots of kind of trees and and so it really is. Not well, not lots of. I mean, because this is a tiny garden in London, yeah. but just shut out London so that you feel yeah. like you really are in a yeah, in a in a, you could be anywhere. Yeah. It's like a it's like a TARDIS, really, oh, like Doctor Who's like Doctor Who's TARDIS. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so the story recently wrapped up twelve books in the series. Yeah. At what point did you realize that you had this massive story inside of you and, and, and that you would have that opportunity to explore it with multiple books, even if you didn't know it was going to be 12 at the time? Looking back, I was pretty innocent. <laughs> <laughs> Innocence is a wonderful thing. Yeah. I just assumed that I was going to have room really? to do that. Yes, and maybe that was innocent. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out for you, though. <laughs> well, it did work out, which is, which is like, I mean, the reason why I, I wrote such a long series was that I'm very interested in getting children reading. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, think, I think if you write, if you can get it, you know, the mechanics of reading can be difficult for kids nowadays, particularly as telly and, you know, films are just beamed in magically to their heads without them having to make any effort. Um, and telly and film are so much better now than when I was a kid growing up. Um, the, the mechanic, you know, the, the fact that they really have to, even if they don't have a learning difficulty or anything, it's still that effort that yeah. you have to make. Yeah. And so... My feeling about it is, is if you can get a kid into a, into a long series, you know, and, and they can get addicted to the characters and into the world, mm-hmm. they're going to make that effort, um, you, know, to, to, you know, you can feed them in yeah. with the first book. And by the time they've finished the 12th book, they're a really good reader. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I very gently, very gently made the books just a little bit more complex as you go on. Mm-hmm. So, so really, I have thought about that all as you go along, mm-hmm. that the kid by the end is going to be a much better reader than they were at the beginning. Exactly. Um, and so, so I had always conceived of it like that, that it was going to be this, this long series that you, that you, where you felt that the adventures um, weren't necessarily going anywhere. And then, then sort of about, you know, three quarters of the way, way through, or you realize, oh my goodness, there's an overarching plot, and you know, it all connects together, and um, and that, and, and I consider that as a very exciting moment for the kid. Yeah. Um, so, but I think that's because I grew up in. I don't know whether you have Enid Blyton, you know, the, um, who wrote masses and masses of books. Um, uh, you know, so and I read all of them. If you yeah. mean, you don't know what you ha- you probably have things like the Hardy Boys. Yeah, we and, have equivalents. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so that's how I was seeing it. Um, 
yeah. from the beginning. It, it's 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 funny that kids, I think, have come to expect that. They've come to expect these multi-book arcs, you know, with, with everything. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter will, she's seven now, and she'll pick up a book. And it doesn't matter what the book is or, or who wrote it or what it was about. If she enjoys it, the, her first question to me is, is there a number two? Is there a number three? Yeah, you know, yeah. They expect sequels and they expect these series. And she, yeah. she, I mean, she's currently obsessed, obsessed with the Dragons books. Um, oh, so oh, that's so she, lovely. Will you send her my love? I will. I mean, she. I, I would have she's to. She's young, actually. Seven is young. She, get... she is young. She she loves to read, and she fell into the stories, as I'm sure is not uncommon these days. She her first exposure was the film. Um, yeah. And so, and then I said, well, you know, there are books <laughs> that this is based oh. on, and so we picked up the first couple, and she just tore through them, and she loves them. Um, and she's also obsessed. She, I, I've talked about this before, but she, uh, she's huge into audiobooks. And so right. every night, you know, some kids fall asleep to music or whatever. She'll, she'll turn on one of her stories and that's what she falls asleep to. And recently it's been dragons every day, all day, you know, it's just, yeah. she'll just put it on her room. And I have to admit, listening to David Tennant read the books oh. is not a bad way to experience the story. <laughs> oh, he's wonderful. <laughs> we were so lucky to oh, get him. It's fantastic. And we got him before he got the um, Doctor Who mm-hmm. um, job. Um, but he's been so great, David Tennant, you know, because he was incredibly busy with the Doctor Who, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously a phenomenal success. But he always made time mm-hmm. to to record the the, um, the books as he went through, you know, yeah. as, you know, even though he was doing that job. Uh, and he just brings them to life in mm-hmm. such an incredible way. Um, I really wanted, you know, because he's from Scotland himself, David mm-hmm. Tennant, and I really wanted some a, a, a Scottish um, voice actor because because of it being inspired by Viking Scotland. Right. Um, and then when they suggested David Tennant, I said, oh my goodness, if we can get him. Yeah, I was going to say no to that. <laughs> yes, if we can get him. <laughs> I was so excited when he said yes, because he's just a genius. He, he, can, he records them, because I've sat in on listening to him recording them, mm-hmm. and he records them almost in one take. <sighs> he's phenomenal. I mean, he goes, because the accents, if you think all the different tribes, and right. so, so he'll go from, um, you know, Glaswegian to Northern Irish to Kamikaze is Welsh. And he just does these accents. Just, he just flits from accent to accent. He's like, he's incredible. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I have, she, she'll, my, she'll have the audio on. And if, if I happen to walk into the room when she's listening to it, because she'll listen to him in the middle of the day, too. Um, I, I just stop and I just listen to it with her because it's, it's mesmerizing, you know, yeah. just, I mean, him doing it, but then the story, I mean, he like, you're right. He just brings it to life. It's, yeah. it's such a vibrant experience to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. He is, he is a genius. Yeah. <laughs> He's a genius actor. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Doctor Who. <laughs> Mine too. Mine too. <laughs> yeah, a bit but, but, you know, he is marvelous. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so lucky to get him. My daughter actually has a question for you. She, she's, I'm, I'm her proxy at this moment. Um, she, w- she wants to know how you come up with the names for all the different dragons and the characters because they're so unique. Um, well, it, 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 Vikings really were called extraordinary names. Yeah. So there were Vikings like Magnus Bearlegs, and that's a real name of a Viking, Magnus yeah. Bearlegs, um, and Ivar the Boneless. 
which I just thought was a fantastic name. name. Um, So I thought that that was my inspiration for giving them names that sort of described what they were. Um, And so as a result, you have, you know, I've other bonus, you have fish legs and um, dog's breath, the Durbrain, who's a sort of um, bully character. Um, And so that that was inspiration. And that was also the inspiration for Dragonese. Um, So the Dragonese language that I put in, put through the books, the language that the dragons speak to one another, um, you could almost understand. It's playing games with language. So you can almost understand um, what, 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 you know, what the, what the words mean. Yeah. You can guess at it, if so to mean. Um, uh, I, and it's also just me- meant to make them laugh as well. Yeah. Um, so um, so th- there's a sort of a combination of things going on there. Yeah. Um, but I'm also trying to make them think with the Dragonese um, language. So, for instance, the word in Dragonese for window is air square. And so I'm, I'm inviting them to think when you, you know, a, a window... Um, by calling it an air square, you know, a window is not only a window, but it's the square of air inside the window, you yeah. know, so I'm, I'm trying to play games with language in that way. Yeah, oh, the wordplay is wonderful in Dragonese. It's, it's got to be difficult to write, though. Um, but actually, no, no. I, I know I love writing the Dragonese. <laughs> I, Dragon I don't find it difficult, no, actually. I, I love playing games with language. Um, I suppose, yeah. Um, and yeah, um, and and I put in a lot of interesting words in there. Um, I don't. It's it, it's interesting because I, 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 the words are actually I put in a lot of long words, even mm-hmm. though mm-hmm. I get read by a lot of children who are dyslexic, um, and loads of parents of dyslexic kids say, you know, that you know that, that their kids first started reading on these books. Um, and because my theory is, is that kids, as long as you keep the plot line really exciting and, you know, they identify with the characters and you make them laugh and you make them really you know, anxious about what's going to happen, you can, you can still, you, you, you must, you don't need to dumb down for children. Right. Children are highly intelligent and they're really good with language and ideas and, there's nothing so complicated that a kid hasn't pointed out to me. <laughs> they haven't noticed. They're really sharp yeah. kids. Um, and, you know, if you look at an episode of The Simpsons, you know, that, that's very sophisticated storytelling. So I don't dumb down, right. but I just keep the plot very exciting and it, it all very funny and, um, uh, and keep them caring about the characters. And then you can use you know, you can use a wider vocabulary. And I think that's so important um, that children, um, you know, are exposed to a wider vocabulary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to just shift gears just a few minutes. Um, Adaptations are obviously a very tricky thing, and they're certainly not a substitute for the source material. Um, But would you say that the films have captured the heart of your books, even though they were changed quite a bit? Yes, I would. Yeah. And I, I I love the films. I just <laughs> yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> I love the films. I just think uh, you you put your finger on it. They capture the heart and the spirit of what I'm trying to say yeah. in in the books. They are funny. They are exciting. They have that 
sense of wonder of uh, the natural world, um, the kind of detail and sort of beauty. You look at those films, the artistry of them, you just think, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. And the dragons are truly wow. Oh, and that's what you want to feel with the dragon. Yeah. You feel like, you know, the flying scenes just, you know, that's, you know, a basic inspiration is, you know, I want to fly on, as a kid, I wanted to fly on the back of a dragon. And you, you become like a child again, watching yeah. it with your kid. Yeah. You know, that very basic thing. And the message is about looking after the environment. I said my dad was a birder and an, an environmentalist. L- looking after the environment, you know, what kind of leader should we be looking to? All of these all of these messages are in there. Yeah. So they make you laugh, they make you cry, they make you, they move you. I think stories, whether books or films, yeah. should move you. Yeah. And these do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and for me, that's the most important thing. Even, you know, they're never going to make 12 films. Right. You know, and I didn't, I didn't set out, I didn't write the books. Um, expecting them to be made into films. I didn't write them like screenplays. Mm-hmm. I don't think that books should become screenplays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think you should have to write books bearing in mind that they may might be made into films. This is just my personal view. Right. Um, and so I think I was concentrating on being a book writer and making it work as a book series and using you know, what I've got, using language in a certain kind of way, you know, because that's what books books are. Whereas you know, the filmmakers were concentrating on making a beautiful and, you know, a film series yeah. that was true to the spirit of the books. Yeah. So we were doing slightly different things. Sure. Um, but I think that they are very, you know, they, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I, we, there were definite changes made to the story. There were characters <laughs> introduced. Um, is there anything, like, when you were watching the films, though, were there any changes that you particularly like? Anything that you said, man, I wish I had thought of that. That's, that's a really good idea. Yes. I thought when Hiccup lost his leg yeah. at the end of that first film, that was just, I, you know, as soon as they said that to me, they showed that, that bit to me, I just thought, wow, that is such a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought, because it was so Hiccup-y. Yeah. And it... And it <laughs> Yeah, it was so hiccupy, and it was so, you know, the fact that, you know, Toothless had, I mean, I thought that was a fantastic idea. And I thought it, it gave a hero for, ki- you know, for kids, you know, who may, you know, not, uh, you know, have have that same thing, or sure. it gave a hero, a Hollywood hero for them up yeah. there on the screen. And I thought that was fabulous. Yeah. I was, I, I really was in awe of that. Yeah. The um, the animated, I mean, it's not just the animated dragons universe, I guess you would call it. It's not just the soon to be three films. I mean, it's really exploded. There's been a few TV shows. There's the Race to the Edge, which is on Netflix now. Um, when when you look at all of that, I mean, is it gratifying to see your characters take on these lives that are completely independent of you, or is it? Do you feel like you've sort of lost control to an extent? It's that's such an interesting question. It is. I mean, it, this has been a long process. So, so basically, DreamWorks bought the, they optioned the rights in 2004. And where are we now? We're at sort of yeah. <laughs> So, it, it's been a, a long process. But I think I realised right from the beginning that I was going to have to. I think I was open to other people's creativity right from the beginning. And that isn't completely easy. I'm not going to make out that it's totally easy um, because you know, with a story that's so autobiographical, um, you know, you, you know, that, 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 
you know, that can be tricky. Yeah. But I think that if you want, you have to be, you have to, um, you have to give up control a bit in order to be open to other people's creativity. Because, you know, you want a director. I have the same director um, and producer on all three films. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a director, a writer-director, with a really strong vision. And you want that strong vision, yeah? yeah. Don't you? Um, and if you have somebody, you know, what an author who's sort of hovering over the whole thing, you know, saying, oh, it can't be like that, you know, yeah. do you? You have to give things generously in a way. And, of course, you have to trust the person that you're giving it to. I mean, um, the team there yeah. are incredible. And I'm very, I'm very close to the team. I'm really good friends with, with Dean, the director, mm-hmm. um, and Bonnie, the producer. Bonnie Arnold produced the first Toy Story, you know, um, Dean uh, was a co-director of Lilo and Stitch, Mm -hmm. which was an extraordinary movie for Disney to make at the time. You Mm -hmm. know, it was a very groundbreaking movie for Disney to make at the time. So, you know, I've been in the hands, you know, that's been in the hands of some amazing people. Um, And although, of course, sometimes it can be difficult, you can then get an incredible surprise. You know, you can, um, you know, if if you... as I say, if you give generously and trust the people, obviously you have to choose the right people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, you can get a wonderful surprise. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, mostly I've just been incredibly excited by what has happened. Yeah. Um, and the films and the television series have brought, you know, the books are my vision, if you know what I mean. And I'm a book writer and that's what I am. Um, and, and the films and the television have a been wonderful, um, and you know I've been incredibly lucky to have such a great interpretation. You know it's unusual to have such a marvelous a- adaptation of your of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, but also they brought you know a new audience to the to the book. Sometimes you aren't necessarily from book reading families, or you know so that's that's wonderful. That and that's part of what I'm trying to do in general. Yeah. Um, so. It's it's been a I think I've been remarkably lucky. It's been a wonderful experience. That's the an whole understatement, thing. I think. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I feel mostly is grateful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You have been writing about Hiccup and the Dragons for thirteen years, probably more. But you've yeah. been writing about dragons. I mean, in general, for much longer than that. Yeah. How hard is it to leave all that behind? For the time being, maybe not yeah. forever, but for the time being. It has been hard and it's been very emotional. Actually, in fact, the, the books, I first started writing um, the books, it was started as a picture book. Um, it was 18 years ago and I just had a baby. And you know the moment when you, any parent will know this, when you look in the back of the car and you think, yeah. oh my goodness, are they going to let me out of hospital with a baby? Yeah, what have I done? <laughs> yes, I know nothing about babies. <laughs> Yeah, and so you start finding out about babies, and you start looking back to your own childhood and thinking, you know, how how was I brought up? And so that's got what got me talking, thinking about, you know, my own childhood and in Scotland, and how my, you know, it could have been how to train your baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's about being a parent. You know, the books are about being a parent. So yeah. it's about Stoic's relationship with Hiccup, and um, you know, it's it's Hiccup looking back as an old man to his own childhood, and that the feeling about that is 
is is that the, I, I design these books to be read by an adult to a child. You know, they don't have to be, but um, so that you know the adult is looking back to their own childhood while they're reading it with their kid. Um, and so that's what creates the sort of bittersweet effect mm. of, of, of the books. Um, but of course, while I've been writing them, I've been bringing up my own three children. Yeah. It's, it's very much enmeshed and lots of really, the conversations Hiccup has with Toothless are the kind of conversations I would be having with my own two-year-old, <laughs> you know, getting them to eat at dinner time or, you know, and Toothless is like the voice of my two-year-old sometimes. So, um, and my... I just written the last book, and my daughter, that baby, um, has just left home. Oh. I know. So it's been, you know, it's very emotional. Yeah. It, you know, writing that last book was very emotional, um, and I'm sure it's not a coincidence. There are no coincidences. No. There are no hiccups, no accidents. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I found it. I found it, you know, very. Very emotional writing yeah. that last book. I can't even imagine. I can't even but I was really, I was delighted. You know, it was it was wonderful to write as well. I was really pleased with the last book, yeah. uh, and it felt like a really satisfying ending. Yeah. Um, and I have been, you know, feeding in to because <laughs> it's going to be kind of emotional. Um, I have been starting to write an, a new a new fantasy series um, set in a, a different world. Oh, fantastic! And I started doing that a couple of years ago, um, and and since I completed How to Fight Dragon's Fury, I've been concentrating and throwing myself into nice. that. You know, can you talk about that at all, or no? You, I'm not supposed to. I think I'm not supposed. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. Point, <laughs> at some point, they've got to let me talk about it. <laughs> I think it's coming out. It's coming out here. In, in the U.S., I think, in o- next October, which isn't so far it's away. It's not that far away. Um, and in the U.K. in September. Um, so it's not very far away, but I haven't had to talk about it yet. But it is, it's, an, it's, a new, it's another fantasy series. It's, it's um, uh, set in a completely different world from Hiccup, but it's, it's at, the, at the same reading level. Okay. It's the same reading level, and again, it's fantasy, and I'm throwing myself into it uh. because you've got to, you know, um, you've got to, you know, you've got to see endings as beginnings, exactly. haven't you? You've exactly. got to think very positively and see endings as beginnings, new beginnings. New beginnings. If, yeah. if you weren't a writer, what would you be doing? That's so interesting. I, um, I'm not sure. I, I weren't a writer. I, I would find it difficult not to be a, a writer <laughs> of some sort, a storyteller of some sort. Yeah. Um, so whether I didn't, I could see myself writing for anything. I could see myself actually writing for movies or stories for plays or, or performing. I, I, you know, I am a, but also, you know, a teacher or something like that. I love the, the thing of getting children excited about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, and a teacher is sort of a storyteller as well, In aren't they? In their own they? way, absolutely. Are they? Um, so something like that or... Uh, I can't imagine not being a storyteller. I really can't <laughs> imagine it of some sort. But, you know, a painter, I suppose, something artistic, something creative. Oh, gardening. I like gardening. There you go. <laughs> and, and hiking and, and being outside and um, that sort of thing. But, but being a storyteller really is at the heart. It's the heartbeat of what I do. Yeah. Really. Cressida, thank you so much. I know we've, we've, we've run past the time that we had with you. So thank you so much. It's just been an absolute pleasure to talk to you.
It's been so lovely talking to you. Such wonderful questions. Oh, thank you. What a fantastic conversation. Jamie taking the reins when I am just unreliable and not showing up to places. And <laughs> it's all right. I, I, I think it was probably during my move that you interviewed her close to it or something. I like think that. it was. You had a lot going on this month. Yeah. And, and to be fair, December around the holidays is never a good time anyway. But when people say that they're available, you kind of have to jump on it. Especially, right. especially Cressida because uh, it just so happened that when I reached out, she was – here in the states on a book tour nice and she uh was like i actually did this interview on the weekend which is very rare mm-hmm. i think it's the first time we've ever done it yeah interview on i the would weekend. say yeah she was in she was in i think it was when she was in miami for um the, uh, a book fair for um like a big uh the miami book fair i think is what it was um and she was headed back to the uk like the very next day right. and, she, and she was gonna buckle down and start writing and she wasn't doing any more press wow. so it's like well so you have, you have to take it, right? I had to take I'm it. I'm not going to do yeah. any press for months. So you have to take exactly. it <laughs> Exactly. So, and, and also by my mentioning that, if you heard in the background, um, I don't know, maybe Justin can did some of his magic on this episode, but when I was talking to her, um, there was some music in the background, and I'm not sure if she had a radio on or if there was a cross line somewhere, uh, but it was music. very... That's what I call it. It was, it was mood music, yeah. So if, if it if it was distracting, I apologize. But there's nothing I could have done to control that. <laughs> <laughs> it was your fault. You had it on. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming back week after week. And thank you for hitting subscribe. And we're going into the new year with a whole slate of guests coming up. And we can't wait to share them with you. We had another great year. I think this is our second Christmas as... Or the second second going into like uh, blah 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 blah. I think this is the second time we've crossed a new year with doing this show. It is. Yep. So we are just we're not stopping. We're gonna keep going and we're gonna get more and more and more. And Jamie's putting emails out. Yeah, but if you'd like yeah. us to stop, um, you can just send us money, yeah. and we'll be <laughs> yeah. happy to take exactly. money. And if you really want us to stop, yeah, we will, we will <laughs> stop for twenty five thousand dollars each. <laughs> All right, and then we'll just start another show. Exactly, we'll we'll, we'll make a show with a name that's not hard to say. <laughs> Where would be the fun in that? All right, if you want to find us on Facebook, we are at the GBB Podcast on Facebook and the, at the GBB Podcast on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the episode, or just join in on the conversation. We share a lot of cool things that you might like, and cool is that even a word the kids say these days? Probably not. What cool? Yeah. Old um, men in their thirties. I, I, I say it all the time because yeah. I'm old. <laughs> we share nifty, rad. Nobody things. says nifty. That's okay. <laughs> I can guarantee you that one. All right, and I am Justin at 140 Justin C. I'm Jamie at the Robots, and we will see you next time right here at the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Take care. Nobody says nifty. <laughs> <laughs>